I'm Dave Gans, MGMA Senior Fellow for Industry Affairs, welcoming you to the Executive Session, a monthly discussion with a healthcare leader on a critical issue of interest to medical practice executives. Currently, the United States is in the midst of a health crisis as the COVID-19 or coronavirus is affecting hundreds of Americans and threatens to expand throughout the country. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Jason Persoff, Associate Professor of Medicine, Assistant Director of Emergency Preparedness at the University of Colorado Hospital at UC Health, Aurora, Colorado, for his insights and how a medical group can best prepare, provide appropriate care to its patients while protecting its staff and providers from infection. Uh, Dr. Persoff, please introduce yourself and describe your responsibilities at UC Health. Thanks, Dave. I am a hospitalist, uh, which is sort of an unusual position that not many people know about. Basically, in the old days, your family doctor would take care of you both in and out of the hospital. But now we take care of you in the hospital and your family doctor takes care of you when you're outside. And hospitalists are not known for being emergency preparedness experts. But I have, over the years, uh, accumulated a lot of knowledge about emergency preparedness, and I'm the assistant director of emergency preparedness here at University of Colorado Hospital. Before beginning our session, I'd like to provide my personal background on the topic. In addition to my work at MGMA, I had a parallel career in the United States Army Reserve, retiring as a colonel in the Medical Service Corps. Much of my military experience was in, the Army, in an Army Reserve Combat Support Hospital where we trained our professional and support staff on how to care for patients in various environments. In addition to focusing on the trauma injuries you expect on the battlefield, we spent substantial time training for bioterrorism-related infections. Uh, important in the context of today's discussion is that most of our training was not identifying or treating disease, but how to protect our doctors, nurses, and support staff so they would not become casualties themselves. The same situation applies today for medical practices who are on the front line of treating patients who may be infected with COVID-19. Uh, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, better known as the CDC, as well as state departments of health and most news organizations have published information describing the COVID-19 outbreak and how the virus is expanding from its original epicenter in Wuhan, China to virtually all other parts of the world. Today, the World Health Organization declared coronavirus a pandemic, signaling that health experts expect and believe efforts should be focused less on containing the virus and more on stockpiling materials, getting hospitals and doctors ready to treat, to handle an influx of patients, and enacting social distancing policies. Meanwhile, the United States has reported hundreds of confirmed cases of the coronavirus as the virus is spreading throughout the country with the probability that most primary care practices and many specialty groups will be confronted with patients infected by the virus, it's imperative that they understand how the virus spreads and what they can do to minimize the chance their providers or staff members will become infected. Uh, Dr. Persoff, can you briefly describe how the virus spreads and why medical professionals need to treat patients who may be treated with COVID-19 differently than their other patients? Absolutely. Um, and as Dave and I had talked about before, he and I share an experience in emergency preparedness back when the Pope came to the United States in 1999. And uh, here in Colorado, we had the largest mass casualty incident we've 
I've ever had actually because of uh, McDonald's and, and people not being able to tolerate the heat and the dryness. COVID-19 is a, a particularly interesting illness in that we know that it is a subset of coronaviruses, which are extraordinarily common and tend to be seasonal in their nature. COVID-19 in particular is, like all other COVID viruses, is spread via droplets. Um, these droplets occur when somebody sneezes or coughs. Um, we also know that it can be spread through what we call fecal-oral transmission. The easiest way to think of this is if somebody actually goes to the bathroom, wipes their behind, and then fails to wash their hands, their hands could transmit the virus as well. Now, the reason this is such a different virus and why we need to treat it differently than the regular coronavirus is twofold. The first is this tends to be a much more serious illness. Um, approximately 5% of patients who contract COVID-19 will end up requiring a ventilator, and about 15% will require being on high-dose oxygen for up to three to six weeks during recovery. So obviously that's one part to it. Um, the second part is that it, it, is, um, it is fatal, and it does tend to kill people at a higher rate than background regular influenza. So when we have somebody who comes in, for example, with the concern of an upper respiratory tract infection, it's very easy for somebody with COVID-19 to spread this, particularly because the symptoms at the beginning are so innocuous and so consistent with other upper respiratory tract illnesses. These patients need to be treated generally differently by being placed immediately in isolation, by putting a mask on the patient, having them in a room that has no equipment in it, and the door closed in order to minimize the risk of spread of these droplets that we talked about that are infectious. You know, uh, I know the CDC has identified the elderly and people with chronic conditions like heart disease, lung disease, or diabetes at being most at risk for developing a serious COVID-19 infection. Uh, since this also describes the, the patients who are the majority uh, for most medical practices, uh, what should a practice be doing to educate their patients on how to avoid the infection and what they should they be doing about their con patients' concerns with COVID-19? Well, the first and most important piece of advice is to spread the word, don't panic. Um, the good news is the majority of patients who do get COVID usually get very mild um, or at most moderate symptoms. And by far, most of those patients are going to do just fine. We also know that the disease has a predilection for people who are older, as you just pointed out, um, and also those with comorbidities, but younger patients, particularly our children, who are at risk often during the viral season for really adverse consequences from many respiratory viruses, do not appear to suffer ill harm from COVID. In fact, to date, there has not been a child in the world who has contracted COVID under the age of nine who has perished from the disease. So there's a lot of good news there. The second thing is, like any other illness, COVID has standard prevention strategies. Single most important is that patients need to practice social distancing. Now social distancing can be mandated in the form of the government and can be assumed as a step slightly above quarantine. However, standard uh, social distancing means that number one, you don't go to places where there are crowds, where the crowds will be close and pressed in around you. Already we've seen many conferences and concerts uh, and various different meetings canceled as an effort to try and keep people from sort of being in the same spot at the same time. Do not go out and see anybody who may be ill. I know some people like to 
bring special things back to their family or friends who may be ill, um, like soups and things like this. But at this point in time, it is very important to avoid anybody who may be ill in order to minimize your risk. The third thing is, it's important to know that the use of masks, which has seemed to be very popular on both the internet and in a lot of people's practice, does not reduce the risk of developing COVID infection. The single most important thing that reduces the risk is washing your hands. Now, interesting study shows that, in fact, we touch our, our faces roughly around 40 times per hour while we're awake, of course. And, and the biggest problem is that people come in contact with some of these droplets that have fallen when people sneeze or cough. And then within just a few minutes, if you think about 40 times per hour, somebody raises their hands towards their face, touches their eye, mouth, or nose, and those particles are thus ingested. So the biggest enemy in this case is the stuff on our hands that we're transmitting to our face. So it is extremely important to do proper hand washing or to use an appropriate hand sanitizer. Now, there are two things to know about washing your hands. First is, it really matters how long you do it. In order to keep infection from spreading, people need to wash their hands for a minimum of 15 to 20 seconds. I'll tell you what, that is a really hard task. You can do it by singing happy birthday to yourself twice, uh, but I gotta tell you, that really wears on my nerves after just the first time through. So look at the clock, wash your hands thoroughly, both sides. Make sure you move your ring around if you have a ring on your fingers in order to get underneath that go ahead and decrease transmission. And then after you've done that for 15 to 20 seconds with warm water, once you dry your hands, do not touch anything you don't have to. If you're using hand sanitizer, the trick here is to let it actually evaporate on your skin. Similar to washing your hands, it's important to wipe them back and forth and get that hand sanitizer over every single part of the hand, including between the digits, underneath the ring, and down all the way to the level of the wrist. If you wipe your hands off or use a towel because it's still wet, you're defeating the purpose. It's really in the evaporation that this becomes the most effective way of decreasing disease transmission. Yeah. Now, also, uh, in, in the context of what practices need to be thinking about, uh, COVID-19 is a very different coronavirus than severe acute respiratory syndrome or SARS which uh, people may remember spread through much of the world in 2003. And there's a lot of information that epidemiologists and others are applying from the SARS epidemic to our current situation with COVID-19. Uh, significant concern is that in countries where they had significant SARS infection, the majority of infection occurred in healthcare facilities and nearly half of the people infected with SARS were doctors and nurses who treated SARS patients. So what, you know, can you give us more insight on the risk to healthcare workers from COVID-19? Absolutely, so SARS was a big scare, but then there was also been a more recent scare with the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome or known as MERS. Both SARS and MERS are, are coronaviruses, believe it or not. Um, so they share a lot of their, well, not DNA in this case, but RNA. They share a lot of their RNA with COVID. Now, the, a lot of research went into why did healthcare workers so disproportionately suffer when SARS spread out through uh, the world? And the short answer is there wasn't proper precautions by clinicians that when dealing with particularly uh, things or situations where 
the particles will become aerosolized. So one of the things that is very common in patients who are pretty ill is we either put them on some positive pressure ventilation like CPAP or BiPAP, or we intubate them, uh, or we give them nebulizers, uh, or we start very large central lines. All of those can aerosolize particles very easily. Back when we had SARS, you know, there wasn't a lot of emphasis on face shields, uh, clear shields blocking uh, the face and the upper portion of, of uh, around the eyes. Um, and there wasn't an emphasis on high particulate filtering masks, such as N95 masks. And the consequence of that was these particles became aerosolized. People very easily came in contact with uh, particles around their face and were able to get the disease fairly easily. In COVID-19, there's been a real mindful approach about this. One of the things that uh, just came out actually yesterday on the uh, 10th of March from the CDC is that, uh, you know, it's probably okay for people not to use N95 masks when uh, patients are not experiencing any aerosolization from a procedure. So in other words, if somebody's not getting a nebulizer, isn't on BiPAP, isn't getting a central line, isn't getting intubated, in fact, we probably don't need to put those patients into negative pressure rooms. But learning from SARS and MERS, we do believe that it is absolutely essential that people have a face shield. It's notable that in the past, we have often thought that glasses that people wear are sufficient face shield. That is not the case. Uh, you really need a nice face shield that covers all the way around from temple to temple. And that is a new recommendation that comes with that. Obviously, we want to minimize as much as possible anything that could aerosolize particles of infection and um, trying to uh, both enforce social distancing as well as make sure that when patients come in and may be identified as a COVID suspect, that they're immediately put on a mask in order to decrease the amount of particles that they are emitting. It's important to realize that as of today, March 11th, 2020, there are no vaccines for coronavirus and there is no treatment, although there are several medications under investigation. Back when SARS was very active, uh, there was an attempt to create a vaccine that would treat coronavirus infection, but as it faded into the background, it no longer received a lot of funding interest. Now, of course, there's a tremendous interest in finding a vaccine and it's hopeful that we'll be able to get that going in the near future. Because there is no drug to treat it, most of the care is supportive. So the most important thing is prevention, by far. When a patient comes in with COVID, it's important for all facilities to be able to provide the best level of medical care they can for the patient. So that means recognizing what your limitations are. If you are practicing in a small office and somebody comes in who may have COVID, it's important to have a room where you can place these patients, put a mask on them, and uh, try to limit their contact with your uh, various things like your blood pressure machine and your pulse oximeter. Uh, once you've determined that a patient may be a suspect, it's very important to send them for appropriate testing and to allow the room that they were in to sit undisturbed for one hour before cleaning it down with standard wipes. It's very important to protect your other personnel. So I can't emphasize this enough. There's no room for errors. It's very common, especially in emergency rooms, to see uh, everyone paying fast and loose with uh, personal protection equipment, but really there's no room for that in this particular setting. Everybody should know how to don personal protective equipment. That means also knowing that again, with this particular virus, 
glasses are insufficient, you do need a face shield. A droplet mask or a standard surgical mask is sufficient in most circumstances. And you also want to train your staff in contact isolation. Though it's very unlikely that contact is going to be the main form of spread, we nevertheless recommend that in order to keep you from like getting something on your clothes that you accidentally bring up to your mouth and inhale. It's also important to recognize, as we are rapidly seeing, uh, Italy was a great demonstration of this. At first, there were just some isolated cases in, in Italy, and then suddenly within days, they were on a logarithmic, logarithmic expansion with a number of different uh, patients developing respiratory problems. And within another week from there, it was suddenly the case that the entire country was experiencing 200% uh, patient volumes at most of their hospitals and completely overwhelming staff. I, absolutely. And a lot of the staff did get ill with COVID, which takes them out of the population. So if we are very strict about our personal protective equipment or PPE, make sure everybody knows how to handle a patient with an upper respiratory tract infection as a potential COVID suspect, we really should be able to minimize the risk of, of transmission of COVID to healthcare workers. Yeah. So uh, as we, you know, as practices prepare for COVID-19, can you give some insights on some of the, the, uh, the the distinct uh, topics a a practice leader should be covering with their staff, so they'll understand, so staff members can best understand COVID nineteen because it's going to f potentially affect anybody from the staff, whether it's your support staff, your nursing staff, your receptionists, and potentially even people who are uh, in the back office, even though they may not have direct patient contact. And the ability for people to have their kids out of school. There's a number of things. So first of all, as a leader, it's very important to set aside a time where you can meet with your staff to have, educate them on COVID-19. Not a time during the middle of the day when things are particularly busy, nor do I recommend it at the end of the day when people are feeling tired, but rather right at the beginning of the morning. And it's very important to discuss how COVID-19 spreads. Most of your staff should be familiar with how coronavirus spreads because it is one of the most common forms of cold that we deal with each year. It's just this one happens to be much more serious. As I've talked about, COVID-19 is really a disease where we provide supportive care, meaning that we try and provide oxygen for people who are, sh who are short of breath and have a, a low oxygen saturation. We try to give them IV fluids for dehydration, but in fact, there is no drug that's going to take it away, nor is there any vaccine to prevent it for right now. The single most important thing is to have infection prevention and control well-established in your office in order to minimize the transmission of any COVID from patients to staff. Now, there are a lot of ways you can decrease the amount of office time spent with patients who are potentially ill with the disease. The most exciting things that is going on right now, and we're certainly seeing that at the University of Colorado, is a market increase in our telemedicine. In other words, instead of face-to-face -face time with a patient, we would just go with FaceTime with a patient. Um, and this has been very helpful in, in triaging patients appropriately to those who may need to go to the hospital or those who should just stay home and not come in whatsoever. By reducing the number of patients that come into your practice, you really are reducing the risk of patients having uh, potential to seed illness in your staff. Second thing is, there are a lot of new advice lines coming out the uh, Colorado Department of Public Health has a hotline within each in county uh, within Colorado. There are hotlines to contact the local uh, health department and take advantage of that. Also make sure that your staff knows how to access that by going to websites and having numbers, which would be very helpful. 
it's very important for patients to be identified before they come in as whether or not they could potentially have a upper respiratory tract infection. Now, most upper respiratory tract infections, similar to COVID-19 in this way, are self-limited. They don't often re require treatment. And self-quarantine in the case of COVID-19 for up to 14 days is definitely the best way to prevent staff from getting sick and also let patients know that there's no antibiotic we can give you that's going to make you better. We can create algorithms, and there are certainly commercial kits available for giving phone consultations to patients from your nurses on nurse lines, for example, about how to determine whether a patient should come to the office for testing. They should always call. Your patients should call always before they come in so staff can be prepared to care for them. Remember when I said a patient with any form of upper respiratory infection should be immediately masked at the door. Uh, and that's in order to prevent the patient from transmitting diseases. But in addition to that, they need to be also given hand sanitizer or the option to wash their hands. But if they do wash their hands, it has to be done correctly, as I've mentioned before. When a patient does come in, you need to be prepared for how you're going to deal with when they depart. So, for example, how are you going to disinfect the area? What is going to be your protocol? We also need to have visual alerts, posters, signage, number of things to help coach people through this. Healthcare providers know a lot, but they still make mistakes. So having signage that says something like you need to wash your hands for 15 to 20 seconds and tips to way to do that, that's very, very important. It's also important to make sure you have adequate supplies. Now, there's been an incredible run on toilet paper, which has nothing to do with this illness, but nevertheless, there has been. But there's also been, unfortunately, a very big run on both masks and on hand sanitizer. Hand sanitizer really is actually the most effective way to kill COVID and uh, over hand washing because most people don't wash their hands well. So having an adequate supply of, of hand sanitizer is extremely important, although supply chains are becoming an issue. Make sure that your trash receptacles don't require people to put their hands through a hole or anything where their hands are going to come in contact with the actual receptacle because that could also spread the disease. Make sure face masks are available for anybody who comes in with respiratory symptoms. And very importantly, these patients should be separated away from the rest of your population who's coming in for high blood pressure or diabetes management. You do not want a COVID patient or even any upper respiratory tract patient seated next to somebody who may have some other comorbidities that could prove fatal if they actually caught the disease. Yeah, I think very good comment, very good points that you're making. In fact, we talked earlier that uh, many patients who will actually have the disease are going to have essentially the disease in a minimal state. So they're going to be potentially infectious, but they, their, their, their progress has to be monitored as what, you know, so I think, you know, we'll see is that practices will see t two different types of patients. Those who are just first exhibiting symptoms and, and are coming to the practice for diagnosis and testing, and those who are on the ongoing management of the disease because they may be sick, they may be on home quarantine or and at home, home self-care, but they're not sufficiently ill to go to the hospital because the hospital is going to be overwhelmed with very sick patients. So can you give advice to our listeners on how to uh, first identify patients who may, and, and educate patients who may have initial symptoms how to care for those with ongoing need for treatment, as well as maintaining 
uh, a viable practice for those other patients who have their regular presenting problems and may not even have and may not hopefully ever have COVID-19. So again, I've said this, and I think it's very, very important to emphasize if your staff is sick or their fam your family members are getting sick, it's going to have a dramatic effect on how you run your office. So above everything else is healthcare provider safety, which means really emphasizing PPE, and it means being very proactive about getting patients into isolation so that they don't cause your staff to get sick. Now, there are a number of different things that we can do to help protect the staff. Um, the first, of course, we talked about before, but in addition, you have tons of resources through your local health department. Most health departments are countywide. Um, if you're going to send a patient to the emergency room, and not only do you need to place a mask on them, as we've talked about, but you need to call ahead to the emergency room to let them know what's going on. Now, most patients are not going to require hospitalization. The reality is, if they're not hypoxic, even if they're having fevers, so long as they are overall pretty well appearing and not dehydrated and don't have a lot of comorbidities, there's not going to be a great deal of benefit in sending them to the hospital. In most cases now, different types of uh, lab companies, such as LabCorp or Quest, offer the opportunity for you to, pres to prescribe patients a test that will allow them to screen for COVID. Anytime you order a patient to have COVID screening, it is also important that that patient be identified with their local health department so that they can be followed over time. The most important thing to talk about with, with your staff as well is how to teach patients to self-quarantine. Now, self-quarantine is a very, very big deal. In essence, the consistent message has been patients who have fevers should be in-house quarantined and also wearing masks around their housemates, uh, be that their spouses or their children, and maybe being in a separate room with a separate isolated bathroom in order to decrease transmission throughout the house. When we say self-quarantine, we really mean you're not going anywhere. You need to really stay in your house. You should not be involved in any social activities, and unfortunately that means canceling any trips, plans, or meetings you may have had. Except for medical emergencies, there's really no reason for you to go out if you are considered a COVID suspect. In addition, it's very, very important that um, you have follow-up actions set up to monitor your own staff should they become accidentally infected or come across somebody who's been infected. So let's say you have a staff member who rooms a patient who didn't reveal their reason that they were there was for fevers and respiratory symptoms, but instead they complained of chest pain. Upon entering the room, you find the patient coughing and their temperature is now in the fever range. The most important thing first to do is get case tracing involved. And case tracing means looking at every single person who came in contact with that patient on their way through the door. For all of those individuals, it's important to take in their names so you know who and what you're going to do and to establish well in advance, how are you going to deal with this situation with them in terms of loss of work. Most organizations, and ours included at the University of Colorado Hospital, are that unless you got a very significant exposure, such as being coughed directly on, for example, you really just need to wear a mask for 14 days going forward and to make sure that every day you're checking your temperature. Um, there are actual great guidelines on CDC website that describes the types of exposures healthcare workers can uh, have with patients, and it explains the degree of risk involved. For example, if you were wearing no 
uh, PPE whatsoever, it, you're actually at a moderate risk of getting exposed to the disease. Um, however, it may be the case that you're in the same room with the patient but weren't really close to them, and that puts you in a much lower risk of the disease. How are you and your staff going to compensate for somebody who um, needs to not work for two weeks if they find that they have a fever is going to be something you're going to want to prepare for, understanding that up to 15 or 25% of your staff may eventually come ill with COVID. The other thing is going to be that you make sure that um, you highly train the people who are going to be interacting with these particular patients. You want to make sure that they understand that the most important thing is to isolate the patient, to perform droplet and standard contact isolation. You do not need an N95 mask, and to try to minimize anything that could cause aerosolization of the virus, which including starting IVs. We do not want patients to be visited uh, or have multiple family members with them if they have an upper respiratory tract infection. This is part of the idea of self-quarantine. We really don't want family members or other people to be around them, which sounds really harsh. We're gonna go ahead and abandon you to the wolves, it may feel, but it's really the important thing is public health here. And you also needed to establish very good connections with your local public health, including what could be partnerships. Are you part of a bigger healthcare organization? Is that organization part of what we call a healthcare coalition? And how are you interfacing with that and making sure your messaging and your processes are synchronized in order to, miss, in order to decrease the risk of missed opportunities to improve everyone's outcomes. Um, we are strongly stressing that a healthcare provider's note for employees who are sick for respiratory symptoms is a must. Somebody has to clear a patient who comes back with any upper, upper respiratory tract symptoms before they return to work. We should anticipate that this is going to be a very, very serious disease. Let me give you a couple of anecdotes where that's concerned. In Italy right now, as I said earlier, the hospitals are at over 200% capacity. Um, there are actually some very strict crisis standards of care which have been implemented, which in some places includes no intubation of patients over the age of 65. Because this is a very serious thing, I mean, that's a large portion of our population, we could eventually end up being in that same situation. The best way a pandemic can play out is if we use a lot of social distancing. With social distancing, we minimize the risk of spread of disease. It doesn't mean people won't get it. It just means that the rate that people get it is spread out over a longer period of time. This is great. Uh, in the worst case scenario, and somebody, we have a pandemic, which now we know the WHO has declared it a pandemic, if we can slow down the spread of the disease so it's sustained over a longer period of time, that actually is better. It's not like ripping off a Band-Aid and saying, all right, let's get this out of the way. Let's get, everybody, let's get everybody sick as quickly as possible. The problem is that when people don't practice appropriate social distancing and when they go ahead and continue, despite the warnings from us and from the CDC and the WHO, to participate in crowd activities um, or not paying close enough attention to how they're hand washing, how they touch their face, the reality is that means that we get a lot of patients in a very short period of time. This will rapidly outstrip anything that we can give to keep patients alive. If a number of patients arrive in very rapid short order over a period of a week or two for a large geographic area, there will be more patients who need a ventilator than there are ventilators. This is not a good thing. So one of the things we really wanna see is trying to use the social distancing in order to spread out the virus. Now, unfortunately, that means that this lasts a long time. We know from China that, in fact, 
this is going to last a long time. And that's a really important thing to get through your employees' heads and your own as well. China actually did an incredible job of quarantining patients and whole population centers because they live basically as an autocratic society. And the effect was pretty dramatic. Uh, China's the first country in the world to actually see dropping numbers of cases, but that took five months. So the reality is it's not, we're not gonna be out of this for any time soon. And given our Western predilections for independence and autonomy, it's very likely we could be looking at a disease that lasts six, seven, or eight months. It's better that way if it's spread out over time, and so we actually want to see that happen. There's a lot of uncertainty as to whether or not coronavirus is seasonal. Most coronaviruses are seasonal. That's definitely true, and it was true with SARS. MERS was not that seasonal, and there's really nothing that COVID has shown to make us think that it is truly a seasonal virus at this time. But it's too soon to tell. So we can't really count on that. What we can count on is there's going to be a lot of absenteeism in our job. We need to be sympathetic, but we also have to have very strict return to work precautions. Let's address, uh, as we get ready to close our discussion, that you discuss that you know, an organization need not feel alone, that there are resources available through public health, through uh, their networks, can you give further suggestions on resources a practice leader can use uh, both for uh, coordination, coordinating patient care as well as for more information? Absolutely. So yeah, I got to tell you, the CDC is running one smooth site. The CDC is your friend, and they have an incredible amount of links to really get at questions you may have. Most of those are available on their site through either FAQs or longer breakout articles that you can read. In addition to your local health department, who may be a little bit overwhelmed, they also are probably able to point you in the direction of good FAQs that can help you answer those questions really rapidly. It's important for you to come up with a plan with your local emergency rooms uh, so that you have an idea of how you're gonna work with your emergency physicians in dealing with these patients they are very often in the outpatient world going to actually be one of your best bets on how to handle uh, patients. Do not send any patient, for example, to the emergency room without talking to a physician first. Or of course, I don't wanna leave out any of my um, advanced practice providers either, so I should be careful when I say physician. If they're overwhelmed, you certainly can come together with a practice coalition. Maybe you have other practices that practice similar to you, or for example, there are subspecialists that you work with uh, who have their own practices. And together, try to get together to come up with the best practice for all of you. Um, there is always going to be help for you. Uh, the, at the hospital level, you need to have a very robust emergency management system, which means having a good emergency manager who who can activate the incident command structure and sort of begin to seek out the ways that you're going to interface with your public and with other clinicians. One of the things that we found is very helpful is regular emails, blast emails, and potentially mailings to let people know in your practice how best to stay safe, how important it is that they understand how very serious this illness is and that it is not just the flu. And um, this, can, this happens when you are able to go to these different websites as well as speak to these other people to sort of come up with what your practice you want to communicate to your patients and your staff. Yeah. Dr. Persoff, I'm glad that you made that last comment regarding educating your patients. 
because with so much uh, of the care management for COVID-19 for those patients who have a minimal case is going to be self-care. That it's critical that the patients understand as well what, what, what they can do to treat, their, treat themselves, to self-isolate, to prevent the spread of disease, and more importantly, to know when they need to contact their healthcare provider. Yeah, can you give us a few more thoughts on patient communications? Sure. So first of all, we need to be very clear. So you really need to understand what it is the message you want to communicate. This is one of the reasons that I think flyers and discharge uh, paperwork can be very helpful even for a routine visit. It's important, first of all, for patients to know how this virus is different and the same. And I think it's important that you are clear that patients don't need to panic. Um, most people are gonna do just fine. I'm not going to soft shoe it, however. Patients who have comorbidities, particularly, interestingly, high blood pressure, coronary artery disease, underlying lung problems, or diabetes or cancer, are not gonna do as well with this disease. We also know that for patients over the age of 70, mortality rate basically triples. So in fact, that group more than any other needs to be taking very, very careful uh, measures to avoid getting in infected. You may offer suggestions like, um, for example, one option would be to offer coupons for buying stuff off of Amazon for groceries. There's lots of ways you can get creative to get patients engaged in their care. Updating your website so it has the most current information, including links to the CDC are really great. Also, just sending out or randomly calling certain patients and families just to see how they're doing, especially if this gets widespread, so that you can help sort of nip some things in the bud. Consider creating a patient association with your practice. These could be people who are there to answer those questions that maybe your healthcare providers can't uh, from their comfort of their home if you are willing to give out phone numbers and they're willing to handle HIPAA. There's a lot of creative ways you can engage people, but the most important thing is to stay fact-based. There's a lot of stuff on all of the mainstream media and a lot of the alternative media as well that's just plain false. On the other hand, this is a very, very dangerous disease. And so you want people to know that you're taking it seriously and that you have an action plan that they can also enforce for themselves. Yeah, I think excellent suggestions and also putting that relationship between a doctor and their patient as a, so the patient thinks that their primary source of information should be from their practice and not necessarily f looking at what may be showing up on Facebook or social media. Oh yeah, F Facebook and social media has been an absolute nightmare. Um, I have actually had a pretty brisk following on social media and uh, the, the amount of misinformation from people thinking it's due to uh, 5G radio waves uh, to people thinking it's a hoax made up by the Democrats I mean, it's, it's an insane amount of misinformation. That's usually mostly vitriol and very soft on facts. Yeah, that's right. Well, uh, doc, uh, Dr. Pearsoff, there's so much more we could discuss, uh, but, but with your busy schedule and your patient uh, responsibilities, your time is very limited. Is there anything else you would like to add as we conclude our discussion today? You bet. First of all, I really am glad to have had the opportunity. It's an honor to be here and a chance to talk about something I'm very passionate about. So thank you for that. Um, I think, you know, this, this is the first pandemic that we've experienced in the modern times. This, the one that most of us have lived through and continue to live through and the only other active pandemic we have is HIV and AIDS. 
with medications and with good treatment in the United States, it's very uncommon for us to really see a lot of people dying from HIV. But the truth is that over in Africa, this is still very much an active pandemic. So because we don't have much experience with pandemics, it's easy to either vilify this and make it night of the living dead and wondering when all the zombies are going to show up or being blasé because we think it's just another flu season, maybe just a little more serious than before. This is the real thing. This may be the once in a lifetime plague that we ever deal with. In fact, this has a lot of hallmarks that are similar to the Spanish flu from 1918 to 1920, where there was over half a billion people who died. Our healthcare is much better, and we certainly know how to keep patients alive much better. But we need to make sure that we're watching our personal liberties and being respectful and mindful of others' health as well. It's very easy to say, I don't feel too bad. I'm just going to go ahead and go in and go to work. And it's very easy to say, it's no big deal. I'm sure it'll be gone in a day. But the reality is we have all of us a responsibility to other fellow men and women and children and the elderly and all the people who are sick. We are responsible for making sure this thing does not go as fast and as far as it possibly can. We don't know if there's gonna be a second peak next fall or if the disease is just gonna burn itself out, mostly like SARS did. Above everything else, people don't need to panic. We'll get through this. You've got healthcare providers who really are passionate about this who will take good care of you. But this is going to be a rough bump in the road and there is no way we are gonna get through it without appropriate planning. So really make sure you come up with a personal action plan, make sure your family knows what your personal action plan is, make sure your staff knows what that is, make sure you are very consistent with PPE, be consistent in your own practices, making sure, like for example, that your children know how to wash their hands or work with hand sanitizer. By the way, my kids when they were younger, they called hand sanitizer stinks. I like that. So make sure you apply plenty of stinks um, and let it fully evaporate out. Um, but most of all, be kind. Uh, that's the most important thing here. Don't be selfish. Uh, don't buy things for diseases we don't have right now, such as the toilet paper. And try to be mindful of how you can be helpful to everyone else. Thanks. Dr. Pearsoff, thank you so much for your information. I know our listeners will find your discussion most informative and helpful as they try to deal with this crisis. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you.